Hi everybody, this is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. We're going to spend a little bit of time delving into a very dark corner of the human condition, trying to unravel the tangled and twisted mind of Elliot Roger, the recent mass murderer in Santa Barbara. A lot of people tragically attempt to climb over the bodies of the victims of these kinds of shooters and unfurl whatever particular political or socioeconomic flag they wish to unfurl, which I consider highly disrespectful to the victims. They're not tools to be used in a political agenda, whether it's feminism, anti-misogyny, or gun rights, or you name it. Uh, These victims deserve as much understanding and analysis, rational analysis, that we can bring to the problem in the hopes of preventing recurrence. So uh, I will certainly avoid doing that. Let's look at the crime itself. Friday, May 23rd, 2014, Elliot Roger, the son of filmmaker Peter Roger, who was an assistant director on one of the Hunger Games films, carried out a mass murder plot which he had planned for over a year. Initially, he was going to do it last year, but a bullying incident left him with a broken leg. Then he was sick, and then he finally enacted it. To tragic effect on Friday. 9.27 p.m., two victims are reported shot and killed outside an Isla Vista area sorority house. Additional sources report shots fired in several other areas of Isla Vista and a description of Roger's car is broadcast to police. The third victim, Christopher Michael Martinez, is shot and killed inside a deli where Rogers fires several rounds after getting out of his car. Roger is approached by police and exchanges gunfire with them before fleeing the scene and are crashing into several bicyclists. In, at 9.37 p.m., Roger crashes his BMW and is found dead from an apparent gunshot wound, which apparently also was self-inflicted when officers approach his car. It is later reported that three additional men were found dead in Roger's apartment when police searched the property. They were stabbed repeatedly with a sharp object in what was described as a horrific crime scene. Is this out of nowhere? Well, tragically, no. In the weeks before the shootings, Roger released a series of YouTube videos, including titles such as Why Do Girls Hate Me So Much? and Life Is So Unfair Because Girls Don't Want Me. Family members called authorities after being alarmed by the videos, which contain references to suicide and killing people. On April the 30th, 2014, Police interviewed Elliot Roger at his home and found him to be, quote, a perfectly polite, kind, and wonderful human. So, good job with that. Roger had three legally purchased guns and more than 400 rounds of ammunition in his home at the time of the police interview, and also he had written down plans for his murderous rampage. Another video entitled Elliot Rogers Retribution, which detailed the planned murders, was published hours before the shootings. Just before we go on, I really want to point something out here. So seven cops show up. They're not trained to assess mental health. They're cops, and they find him to be just fine. A little socially awkward, kind of shy, but just fine. Well, if somebody has published YouTube videos referring, uh, calling for suicide and murder... Maybe it might be helpful for the cops to subscribe to his YouTube channel and be notified when he posts a new video. Maybe it might also be helpful for his parents and grandparents 
and stepmother and mother to also subscribe to his YouTube channel to find out when he publishes another video and what it might contain. It does not seem that that happened because the authorities and his parents had hours after his video was published to prevent him from doing whatever he was going to do, what he said he was going to do in the video. This lack of involvement, uh, I view, is shocking and appalling. I view his video as a last cry for help, for attention to stop him from enacting his plans. Uh, Not exactly a cry for help, but definitely a cry for intervention. This could all have been prevented if the authorities or his parents or someone who knew him had subscribed to his YouTube channel, had seen his video, and had alerted the authorities. This could all have been stopped. This tragically was a continuation of being ignored his whole life. Tomorrow is the day of retribution, Roger said in the seven-minute video, the day in which I will have my revenge against humanity, against all of you. The former Secretary of Homeland Security and current University of California President, Janet Napolitano, said that a mass shooting in the community around UC Santa Barbara is, quote, almost the kind of event that's impossible to prevent and impossible to predict. Well, I think I would take some issue with that. Following the shooting, Sheriff Bill Brown called Rogers mentally disturbed and said it was very apparent of the severe extent of how disturbed Mr. Rogers was. Yes, when there are bodies piling on the sidewalk, you may be well informed to say that a disturbed person did it. But when seven cops show up at his house shortly before this, and call him, according to the lawyer, perfectly polite, kind, and wonderful. Well, I think that may be a little bit of 2020 hindsight. It's a little bit more useful if you figure that stuff out before the bodies pile up. Following the tragedy, some media outlets reported that Elliot Roger was a men's rights activist and blaming the attack on the men's rights movement and rampant cultural misogyny. This is wrong on just about every level. Uh, he had no involvement with the men's rights community that I've read after a significant amount of research into the matter. Uh, He did subscribe to a few YouTube channels saying, here's how to pick up women, but he was also a member of a website called PUA Hate, which is hate for pickup artists. And uh, the only news channel that he was subscribed to on YouTube was the Young Turks. And nobody, of course, have said that uh, (laughs) it's the liberal influence of the Young Turks that has caused this, which, of course, it's not. But um, men who want to sleep with women don't have anything to do with the men's rights community. Otherwise, uh, just about every man would be part of the men's rights community. Um, So this is all nonsense. And it's part of people pushing their agenda uh, over the bodies, which I think is incredibly horrendous. He was an aspiring pickup artist. He subscribed to some of these YouTube channels. But as mentioned, uh, he was also an active member of PUA Hate. A family attorney announced that Rogers had been previously diagnosed as a highly functional Asperger's syndrome child and was was being treated by multiple professionals. We don't know when he was being treated or whether he was under care of a psychiatrist or psychologist or therapist during the time of the shooting. We also don't know whether he was being prescribed any SSRIs, which are known to cause murderous impulses and have been implicated in a wide variety of school shootings. A father whose son was among the six dead in the shooting in California has blamed politicians and the gun lobby, asking in an angry speech, when will this insanity stop? Why did my son die? My son died because of craven, irresponsible politicians and the NRA. They talk about gun rights. What about my son's right to live? When will this insanity stop? When will enough people say, stop this madness? Well, 
His first victims, the three people in his apartment, were killed with a knife. And uh, there are some reports, it's hard to confirm. Certainly, uh, there's a law in California that says you cannot carry guns on a uh, university campus or a school. Uh, This was on the perimeter of the school. It's hard to know exactly uh, where. I mean, whether it was part of the gun-free zone or not. But um, like many people who go to shoot others, he probably targeted a mostly gun-free zone. So uh, eliminating guns is not, not the solution. So a 141-page manifesto authored by Rogers surfaced on the Internet last night, which uh, I have gone through and we will talk about. This is 107,000-plus words. Roger told his life story, which he described as a dark one of sadness, anger, and hatred. So, Elliot's father, Peter Rogers, is the son of a famous photographer who was actually the first photographer to take pictures during the liberation of the concentration camps in Auschwitz at the end of the Second World War. Previously, they were British royalty. They lost their money in the Great Depression of the 1930s. Uh, But uh, Peter, Elliot's father, uh, started working with his own father and became a photographer and then later, of course, a director. So he writes, My father, Peter Roger, was only 26 when he impregnated my mother, Chin, who was 30. So he says, My mother is of Chinese descent. She was born in Malaysia and moved to England at a young age to work as a nurse on several film sets where she became friends with very important individuals in the film industry, including George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. She even dated George Lucas for a short time. And there's a picture of this woman with Harrison Ford and George Lucas floating around on the internet. My mother and father, he says, had been married for a couple of years before my mother became pregnant with me. In fact, her pregnancy was an accident. She'd been taking pills to prevent pregnancy, but when she visited my father on one of his film sets, she fell ill, and the medication she took for that illness thwarted the effect of the anti-pregnancy pills, so their lovemaking during this period resulted in my life. I don't mean to be a nag. I don't mean to portray myself as some sort of omniscient parenting expert, But I will generally say to parents that if your child is conceived accidentally, please shut up about it with your child. Do not tell the child that he or she was conceived accidentally. That is not appropriate information to share with the child in any way, shape, or form. So he writes, at the time that I was born, my mother and father were living in a house in London, but shortly after my birth, they decided to move to the countryside in Sussex. My father was a professional photographer at the time, just in the stage of becoming a director. My mother gave up her nursing career to stay home, and look after me. For preschool, I was enrolled at Dorset House, an upscale all-boys private school in the countryside near where we lived. Now, I did look this up uh, from year four to year eight. Dorset House does does offer boarding school, but it wouldn't have been appropriate or enacted for Elliot when he was this young. I know a little bit by myself was sent to boarding school when I was six, and it can be a little bit on the destabilizing side, to say the least. So Elliot goes on to say, I was forced to wear a uniform, which I hated because I had to wear uncomfortable socks up to my knees. I was very nervous and cried on my first day there. I didn't like school at Dorset House very much. So this is important. There's a certain ethic or approach to parenting, which goes along the lines of, well, I know what's best for you, and therefore I don't have to listen to what you don't like. I consider this appalling parenting. Appalling parenting, you listen to the child. If the child is crying and doesn't want to go to, away to school, then that is something you need to take into account. It doesn't mean you have to indulge your child's every whim. It's not sort of one extreme to the other. 
but these are important things to listen to with regards to your children. Each particular incident, not the end of the world, but when you accumulate them together, they can cause significant problems, in my opinion. He writes, my favorite childhood film was The Land Before Time. It was about a baby dinosaur named Littlefoot who had just lost his mother and was journeying through a dangerous world to find the Great Valley, a land of prosperity and peace. He said, I remember the feeling of utter sadness I felt during the scene when his mother died and the triumphant and happy emotions that swept over me when he finally discovered the Great Valley after going through all the hardship to get there. It was a big part of my childhood. Now, his mother did not die, but one thing that's true about infants is if they are put into care or separated from their mother for more than 20 hours a week, studies show, they experience exactly the same symptoms as if they've been actually abandoned by their mother. So um, if he was away, as I imagine he was, when he was very young for more than 20 hours a week, it's possible that he may have experienced the same symptoms of maternal abandonment, and this is why he was so emotional when he watched an animated film about a baby dinosaur whose mother had died. After, at four years old, he says, I went on a trip to Spain with my parents, my parents' friends, Patrick and Lupe. It was the fourth country I'd been to at such a young age. We stayed at an exquisite castle-like house that I believe was owned by a friend of ours. The house had a tower that I was extremely curious about. At one point, my parents and their friends ventured up to the top of it, but they made me stay below because I was too young. I was sorely disappointed. Again, I'm trying not to make mountains out of molehills, but to me it's instructive that the parents decide to climb the tower and leave a four-year-old alone. I have been a stay-at-home dad now for five and a half years. When my child was four, I would not leave my child unattended, particularly in a strange place where there could potentially be uh, danger. So it's like, well, we want to climb up. You stay here. Well, just carry the child in your arms and climb up, or one of you has to stay behind, but you don't leave the child alone. As they were climbing to the tower, he says, I went outside to look at the cacti surrounding the house. These cacti also sparked my curiosity, and I foolishly decided to touch a cactus. I ended up getting cactus needles all over my hand, and it took a long time for my mother to remove them. I believe that it was during the time after my fourth birthday that my father came to the decision to eventually move to the United States. As he was just becoming a director, he believed Los Angeles would offer more opportunities. It is also during this time that my mother became pregnant again. I was going to have a sibling. My parents decided to have another baby, this pregnancy being planned, so that I can have a sibling to grow up with. We later discovered it was going to be a girl. Now, recognizing the minefield of the work-family-life balance, I wanted to also mention that if you are an extremely ambitious person and you want nothing more than to make a name for yourself and work crazy hours in distant locations may not be the best recipe for having a strong bond with a child. Um, in my, again, admittedly amateur opinion, there was not a strong bond between Elliot and his father or his mother or his stepmother, as we'll find out later. And as a result, children need to attach to something. If they don't get vertical attachments, they will aim for horizontal attachments. In other words, if they cannot attach to their parents, they will try to attach desperately because we're social animals, we're tribal animals. They will try to attach to their peers. If they are rejected by their parents or their feelings are not taken into consideration by their parents and they are also rejected by their peers, then they face the uh, internal rot of isolation without social feedback to prevent the accumulation of negative thoughts, which, again, we'll talk about in a little bit. Starting at six years old, I had to witness my mother and father get into a lot of arguments. At some point, I learned about the possibility that parents can separate, he says. Divorce. 
no longer live together. The, and it's interesting how he writes about this years later, almost like a child discovering this. Parents can separate, divorce, no longer live together, almost like he's reenacting his experience of learning about it at about six or seven years old. The prospect baffled my little mind. I once sat down with my mother on her outside deck and asked her if she and father would ever divorce. She told me it will never happen and that I had nothing to worry about. I was relieved by that. Little did I know such a thing would happen in only a few months' time. My last memory of my parents being together was my seventh birthday, and I would always cherish it. My parents seemed happy that day. It would be the last time I remember them being happy together. I couldn't even fathom the possibility of my parents separating. Very shortly after my seventh birthday, the news came. I believe it was my mother who told me that she and my father were getting a divorce. My mother, who only a few months before told me that such a thing would never happen. I was absolutely shocked, outraged, and above all, overwhelmed. This was a huge, life-changing event. When you have a strong bond with your parents, you can handle the vicissitudes of life, the randomness, the ups and downs of life a lot better. When you don't, uh, feeling overwhelmed by life's changes, particularly negative changes like a divorce, I think is much, uh, much easier to feel overwhelmed. My father was to stay at the roundhouse and my mother would move to another smaller house in Topanga. It was arranged that me and my sister will mostly be living with her mother and we would go to father's house on the weekends. My father was required to pay child support to my mother so that she can look after us. My life would change forever after this. The family I grew up with has split in half. And from then on, I would grow up in two different households. I remember crying. All the happy times I spent with my mother and father as a family were gone, only to remain in memory. It was a very sad day. Now, I'm not even remotely, of course, trying to suggest that divorce causes mass murder because there are hundreds of millions of children of divorce around the world and very few of them will ever become mass murderers. But we're looking at the number of straws on the camel's back, right? The straw that breaks the camel's back. We're looking at the number of problems in the dominoes that lead to the pulling of the trigger. He writes, uh, after only a couple of months, a new and very important person would come into my life. After father picked us up from school one day and took us to his house, I saw a woman with dark hair and fair skin standing in the kitchen. And she introduced herself as Sumaya. She would become my stepmother. Father told me she would be living with us from now on. Again, I'm not any kind of child psychologist, but doesn't it seem to you absolutely shocking that the father would bring a woman to come and live with the family a few months after the divorce with no warning, just saying, here's the new stepmom, she's moving in. Now, my guess, and again, this is only a guess, uh, if a woman says we're not getting divorced and then is divorced a few months later, it's almost always because she found out that an affair was occurring. So my guess is the father had an affair with Sumaya, the mother found out, and there was a divorce, and then Sumaya moved in. This is a, a true callousness towards the needs of the children, which is, which can only result from pathologically self-absorbed people in pursuit of their own pleasure, the mother, and in this case, the stepfather. Well, I'm lonely, this woman's moving in, you've met, never met her, that she's in, just tell the child there's no gentle introduction, there's no slow building of trust, and um, there's no chance for, for grieving or mourning, uh, and so this is uh, incredibly destructive to, uh, to children. My father having a girlfriend, he writes, so shortly after, shortly after divorcing my mother, didn't even occur to me. I couldn't understand it. 
Soon enough, though, I realized that Sumaya was, in fact, his girlfriend, and that they were together just like how my father and mother were together. It was the first time I learned the concept of a girlfriend, and it was hard to grasp. Before that, I always thought a man and a woman had to be married before living together in such a manner, and that it would take a long time for such a union to happen. Father finding a new girlfriend in such a short amount of time baffled me. I was completely taken aback. Now, these kinds of gaps in understanding for children are extremely difficult. I mean, difficult for adults as well. If the father had said, I was seeing this woman before uh, we got divorced and it caused the divorce and so on, that would have been more honest and would have made more sense to the child, although, of course, it would have made the child very angry, Elliot, very angry at his father, uh, if this did, in fact, happen. But, um, or if, if the, the Sumaya, she's actually quite a, a famous actress from Morocco, from a very prominent Moroccan family. She appeared in films, uh, in a film with Matt Damon, and, and she was in some French reality television show and so on. But um, if there's already a child, in fact, there are two children here, you don't just move in and announce that you're going to be the new mommy. Because of my father's acquisition of a new girlfriend, my little mind got the impression that my father was a man that women found attractive as he was able to find a new girlfriend in such a short period of time from divorcing my mother. I subconsciously held him in higher regard because of this. It is very interesting how this phenomenon works, that males who can easily find female mates garner more respect from their fellow men, even children. How ironic is it that my father, one of those men who could easily find a girlfriend, has a son who would struggle all his life to find a girlfriend. There is, I imagine, or or I hypothesize a significant amount of sexual dysfunction on the part of the father and his girlfriend, Sumaya. I'm not going to reproduce the pictures here, but uh, on the father's, uh, on Peter Rogers' website, there are endless pictures of his naked wife's butt. That is, sorry, naked stepmother's, the stepmother, his girlfriend's butt. And uh, it's crazy. I mean, okay, she's got a nice butt, but you don't photograph it and put it out all over for the world to see anybody who logs on to his website and has, has a look. Uh, that is, to me, uh, very disturbed. and It's a lack of boundaries because, of course, this is the kind of stuff that your children will find quite quickly online if they have a mind to. You know your father's name, you go on and look at pictures, and then you can basically see your mother's butt and half a vagina hanging out, your stepmother's butt and half a vagina hanging out, and that is, uh, I think, fairly disturbing and indicates, I mean, what kind of woman would allow for that to to happen? I mean, they staged all of these elaborate pictures of uh, Sumaya uh, shaking her butt at a camera and published them on the web uh, with no age restriction or anything like that. What kind of woman would allow for this to occur? Well, we know that recently Pamela Anderson who has been a professional sex pot, revealed a history of sexual abuse. Could that be the case with uh, Sumaya? It's hard to know, but it certainly would fit. He writes, For the initial period of her being a new member of the family, we got along well, and she was quite fun. But soon she would start to discipline me in a harsh way that I wasn't used to. I felt that because she wasn't my real parent, she had no right to discipline me in such a way. And so I rebelled. That's where the first conflicts arose. There would be many more to come in later years. I've decided not to include some stuff I found on the web, which is supposedly him writing about Sumaya because I couldn't verify it, and it seems so horrendous that uh, I wouldn't want to talk about it. But um, there does seem to be some significant harsh discipline 
that has uh, occurred. Psychologically speaking, a step-parent who arrives after the child is four or five years old cannot be the primary disciplinarian at all, can only discipline in this shadow of the biological parent. And so this is a recipe for disaster. Elliot wrote, I hated the rules she imposed on me, which I believe she had no right to impose. I hated how she would force me to drink milk every morning and very foul-tasting soup for dinner. I made such a fuss about having the soup that she used it as a punishment. Whenever I did something wrong, she would force me to drink the soup. Well, so this is uh, expressing a preference results in a kind of sadistic punishment, right? I really don't like the soup. Aha, now that you've told this to me, I am going to use the soup. The taste of the soup is punishment for you. This utterly breaks down the capacity for connection and revelation between step-parent and child, or parent and child, for that matter. But uh, on the plus side, she had a really nice butt. So Maya's parents were also divorced. And again, you can see these kinds of ripple effects in families all the time. He wrote, uh, after spending a nice week at mother's house, I would cry when Sunday came and I had to go to father's on Monday. I would then spend the entire week at father's house. Now, originally, in case he was at the mother's during the week and the father's, this switched around a lot, I guess. I would then spend the entire week at father's house looking forward to going back to my mother's. I remember those Mondays when my mother dropped me off at school for the first day of father's week. I felt so sad that I cried when I saw my mother's car driving away. Of course, I would hide the tears to avoid embarrassment at school, but I would feel miserable for that whole day. And again, here you see a child whose needs are not being listened to, are not being attended to, and the parents are not troubling to inconvenience themselves and their own ambitions and preferences for the sake of what the child needs. The child is not getting emotional mirroring. He's not getting empathy. He's not being taught sympathy. He's not being listened to and consulted. He's being treated as an object, a hot potato to be passed around. Uh, This is not good for the development of a child. Age six, he writes, my father's new directing career was taking off quite well too, and he would go away a lot to direct commercials for prestigious companies, leaving my mother and the nanny to look after me. The only downside of this was my father's absence from my life. Paternal abandonment is terrible and terrifying, particularly for children of divorce. Age 10, at mother's house, all of my needs were met with excellent precision, whereas at father's house, there would always be a time delay because father and Samaya had less time for me and paid less attention to me. Age 15, my father decided to invest all of his money in his first feature film, a documentary named Oh My God. To make it, he took off to travel all over the world for a few months. Despite this, the one-week one week custody arrangement remained, and during father's week, I had to stay at home at Father's House with only Sumaya. This was a movie where uh, Peter flew around the world and interviewed celebrities uh, about their thoughts about God. And in an interview I watched with Peter on television, he said that he found organized religion extremely dangerous. Well, um, apparently not his son. So I want to reorient that a little, a little. Age 19, Elliot writes, my father effectively abandoned me at one of my most crucial points in my life though in fact he was never really present in my life to abandon me in the first place. When I think about it, he was always absent from my life. When my whole world took a downward spiral into darkness after I hit puberty, he never made any effort to save me. He just didn't care. Both of Elliot's parents are very good looking, although, to my view, Peter has these crazy Tarantino eyes and a smile that only a Terminator could find humane. But... um, the fact that, that Elliot had such rage, it wasn't just rage against women. He hated everybody. He hated women. He hated the men who had access to those women. And he hated anyone who was good looking and having fun. Um, because he didn't actually have the ability or never learned the ability 
to say, I'm not getting what, what I want in my life. What can I do to change? Right? The, it was the universe's job to provide him with what he wanted. And when the universe did not provide him what he wanted, uh, he got to rail against the universe and rage against all the people who withheld everything that he wanted. And uh, that's not, of course, a good mindset to be in. But um, Peter said about his pursuit of this documentary uh, that for two and a half years he was largely absent and his family paid the price. And uh, this is when I say if you have mad, huge ambitions that are going to consume you for 80 hours a week and make you travel all over the place, then you you may not want to be having the kids, right? I mean, your first duty as a parent is, is towards the children, not to your own ambitions. Now, height is, you know, one of the great challenges. Uh, I recently had a woman on my show who uh, objected about men's objectification of women. But women, of course, generally prefer a man who's taller than them. And, of course, they like to wear heels as well. So uh, this is the the number for women that is more challenging uh, if the man is short. So he was um, half white and half Asian. And so he wrote, I was very small and short-statured for my age. I never gave this much concern during my early childhood, but this fact fully dawned on me the day my family took a trip to Universal Studios. When reaching the front of a line for a popular ride, the park staff presented me with a measuring stick and I didn't fit the requirements. I saw other boys my age admitted onto the ride, but I was denied because I was too short. The ride that I was so excited to enjoy at the theme park was forbidden to me. I immediately fell into a crying tantrum and my mother had to comfort me. So again, he lacks emotional self-management and self-regulation. He also lacks emotional preparation. This is the kind of thing that the parents should have talked to him about beforehand, knowing that this was going to be an issue. Being denied entry on a simple amusement park ride due to my height may seem like only a small injustice, but it it was big for me at the time. Little did I know this injustice was very small indeed compared to all the things I'll be denied in the future because of my height. Right, so... He views humanity as having a huge amount of fun, like he's watching a beer commercial thinking that that's everybody's life and he's denied it. And they're denying him that life and laughing at him. And so the amusement park called adult life, adult sexuality, dating, romance, career, and so on is denied to him uh, because of his height. So this, I think, was a prequel to the degree to which he may have been denied access to women because of his height. Certainly the kind of women that he wanted, the blonde goddess that this little racist was obsessed by. I became extremely annoyed at how everyone was taller than me and how the tallest boys were automatically respected more. It instilled the first feelings of inferiority in me, and such feelings would only grow more volatile with time. I desperately wanted to get taller, and I read that playing basketball increases height. This sparked my brief interest in basketball, and I would play it all the time during recess and lunch in the upper Most of the basketball courts were unused, so I'd play it by myself or with anyone who cared to join me. During my time at Father's, I would spend hours playing basketball at Father's basketball court, shooting hoop after hoop long into the evening. And I also remember lying on the ground in the basketball court, trying to stretch my body as much as I could in between basketball sessions. And I mean, don't you get a grim sense of just complete isolation from this young man. He's not talking to anyone about his problems. He's not confessing his insecurities uh, and so on. When I played basketball at school, some boys would join me, and when they did, I saw that they were much better at the sport than me. I envied their ability to throw the ball at double the distance uh, than I could. This made me realize that along with being short, I was physically weak compared to other boys my age. Even boys younger than me were stronger. This vexed me to no end. I mean, vexed is not a uh, 
word that you find out of a 19th century novels a lot. He wrote, by nature, I am a very jealous person. Now, this is very interesting when he says, by nature. He doesn't ascribe much to environment. He ascribes a lot and certainly doesn't ascribe anything to his own choices. So everything is being done unto him by the environment or it's his nature. So by nature, I'm a very jealous person. And jealousy is, uh, uh, arises out of a feeling of instability and uncertainty in relationships, particularly primary caregiver relationships. So his mama was there, and then he was sent to school, and then his mama was gone, and then this other woman moved in. He had a series of nannies, so there's just no place for this young man, this young boy, and this young man to bond. And when you feel insecurity in the bond that you have with people, then you're going to feel jealousy. I mean, I've been happily married for 11 years, and I feel no jealousy uh, with regards to my wife. I know that she loves me and is attracted to me, and there's never any question. I go on trips to do speaking engagements to America and Europe. There's never any question of jealousy because our bond is incredibly strong and, and one of the, more certain to me than the functioning of gravity tomorrow. So he says, by nature, I'm a very jealous person. So the question, of course, a self-reflective person would ask, a person in pursuit of Socrates' first dictum, know thyself, would say, why am I jealous? And would read about attachment disorders and so on. But he says, by nature. It's just the way it is. During playdates, sometimes a friend would have other friends over as well, and I would feel very jealous and upset when he paid more attention to them. Feeling left out, I would find a quiet corner and start crying. My mother and Kim, I believe that is a friend or a nanny, were very understanding and did the best they could to console me. Jealousy and envy. These are two feelings that would dominate my entire life and bring me immense pain. The feelings of jealousy I felt at nine years old were frustrating, but they were nothing compared to how I would feel once I hit puberty and have to watch girls choosing other boys over me. Any problem I had at nine years old was nirvana compared to what I was doomed to face. See, again, uh, they... He's doomed to face. There's no choice. There's no possibility of change. These are just things that by nature he is doomed to face. And the way that he programs himself neurolinguistically, you can see this in the videos. And I've decided not to put pictures or videos in here uh, because I don't really want to give the guy any more publicity. But I think it's important to understand his thought process rather than look to him and listen to him. Of course, find them if you want online. But he keeps programming himself. He keeps reinforcing his own prejudices by saying, it's terribly unfair, it's terribly unjust, people are taking things from me. And uh, you can see him building this world in which he is an innocent victim. I am magnificent, I am like a god, why would women choose anyone other than me? They're sluts, they're whores. Like the way that he just stokes the fire of his own rage, uh, which is to me uh, an empty flame hanging over a lack of maternal and paternal attachment. Um, It's very important that you are conscious of the language that you use to describe your life, to describe the world, to describe your relationships, to describe yourself. We are creatures built on a house of cards of language, and the language that you choose in your life becomes really who you are and how you interact with people. And you can see, if you watch his videos, how he builds this savage tower of hatred, syllable by syllable, word by repetition, word by repetition. As he continues, as my fourth grade year approached its end, my little nine-year-old self had another revelation about how the world works. I realized that there were hierarchies and that some people were better than others. When I became aware of this common social structure at my school, I also started to examine myself and compare myself to these cool kids 
I realized, with some horror, that I wasn't cool at all. Well, try coming to the Canadian colonies <laughs> when you're 11 with a British accent. This revelation about the world and about myself really decreased my self-esteem. I envied the cool kids and I wanted to be one of them. I was a bit frustrated at my parents for not shaping me into one of these kids in the past. They never made an effort to dress me in stylish clothing or get me a good-looking haircut. I had to make every effort to rectify this. I had to adapt. And again, his, his parents seemed to be looks-obsessed. Well, I mean, Hollywood actors, you know, they're, they're looks-obsessed. The shallow materialism, the rampant hypersexuality, the, the kid-destroying violence of the Hunger Games, these all create a web within the world and particularly within the mind of a child. Uh, the fact that his father rose to significant prominence and fame while assistant directing on a movie about the murder of uh, teenagers, of children really, is not inconsequential, right? He models himself after his father. He says that this is who you have to be to get uh, women. And uh, it is so, for, for people who are uh, looks obsessed and, and, and shallow uh, and uh, very focusing on presentation, it seems strange that they would not have, if he's reporting is right, that they would not have worked to make their child as attractive as possible. My first act was to ask my parents to allow me to bleach my hair blonde. I always envied and admired blonde-haired people. They always seemed to so much more beautiful. My parents agreed to let me do it. My new hair turned out to be quite a spectacle, and for a few days I got a hint of the attention and admiration I so craved. I then started to notice that all the cool kids were interested in skateboarding. I had never even ridden on a skateboard before, but if I wanted to be cool, I had to become a skateboarder. This was the start of an obsession to copy everything that the supposed cool kids were doing. This cool element is a, a, an absolutely leprous cancer in the heart of society and is responsible for massive amounts of bullying and suicidality and rage and violence. Cool is not virtuous. It's not honest. It's not good. It's not kind. It's not compassionate. It's not morally brave. Uh, it's just slouchy, sneery, empty tricks and accidental looks and wealth and so on. The, the cool aspect to childhood is truly murderous to the true self, to the authentic connection that children can have. The important thing is how many times you can flip a stupid board with wheels in the air and land on it correctly, not the degree to which you advance the moral cause of the species by being in pursuit of moral excellence. And uh, th this shallowness, of course, is intensely, intensely reinforced, if not downright generated, by a hyper-materialistic, hyper-empty, hyper-beauty-obsessed, and hyper-violent and hyper-sexualized Hollywood-style culture. And uh, it is uh, horrifying how this bladed boomerang has sort of come back to haunt a... Um, media superstar family. At 11 years old, he writes, I was enjoying a lovely summer, but suddenly my mother said that I had to go to summer camp. I didn't like this one bit. It was a last-minute decision. One moment I was relaxing and enjoying my summer break. The next, my mother is waking me up early to take me to my first day of camp. And again, we see this can't trust, can't relax, can't, is not prepared for things, is not aware of what's coming down the road. Everything is bam, you know, bam, just comes in out of nowhere, like hammers that materialize and thump the side of the head out of nowhere. And this is not good parenting. I'm sorry, you need to prepare children for these kinds of changes and, and be alert to how it's going to affect them and what's going to happen. 
At this camp, an incident happened that would scar me for life. The first time that I was treated badly by a girl occurred at this camp. I was innocently playing with the friends I made, and they were tickling me, something people always did because I was very ticklish. I accidentally bumped into a pretty girl the same age as me, and she got very angry. She cursed at me and pushed me, embarrassing me in front of my friends. I didn't know who this girl was, but she was very pretty, and she was taller than me. I immediately froze up and went into a state of shock. One of my friends asked me if I was okay, and I didn't answer. I remained very quiet for the rest of the day. Now, I mean, maybe this little witch was uh, cruel and mean to him, but this is not something that is going to scar you for life unless it is uh, something that has occurred to you many times before. And both his stepmother and his mother are very attractive women and are cold and cruel. At least the stepmother is by his report. He doesn't say much about his mother, but his mother did just wake, up, wake him up out of nowhere and say, you're going to camp, which is pretty cold. So these kinds of occurrences only resonate if there's already that chord playing in your heart. It harmonizes with an existing dirge in your soul. I couldn't believe what had happened. Cruel treatment from women is ten times worse than from men. It made me feel like an insignificant, unworthy little mouse. I felt so small and vulnerable. I couldn't believe that this girl was so horrible to me. And I thought that it was because she viewed me as a loser. That was the first experience of female cruelty. I guess he means peer cruelty, female cruelty. I endured, and it traumatized me to no end. It made me even more nervous around girls, and I would be extremely Weary, he means, he says weary, he's weary, and cautious of them from that point on. And again, there was no way for him to process this because somebody needed to help him to understand that a girl or a woman who is beautiful physically but emotionally abusive or cruel is not a prize that you want. He didn't want to just have an empty sex, he wanted a girlfriend and so on. And so to allow your base lizard brain to point you at particular facial features and body types and not to be in pursuit of virtue uh, with sexuality uh, as its pet is not uh, a healthy way to approach things and that he was not missing out on much by not being able to get with pretty little uh, cruel Cruella de Vils. Uh, But again, he didn't have anyone around who could help him process that, at least not that he reports. One time I was alone at a video arcade. I saw an older teenager watching pornography. And that seems odd to me. I mean, I, a video arcade does not usually... I've never seen a video arcade, arcade with pornography. I guess maybe the older teenager was watching pornography on an iPad or something. My only hope is that the older teenager wasn't on Peter Rogers' website looking at pictures of his mom's ass and crotch, a stepmom's ass and crotch. He said, I didn't know anything about sex at the time. To see this video really traumatized me. I had no idea what I was seeing. I couldn't imagine human beings doing such things with each other. The sight was shocking, traumatizing, and arousing. All of these feelings mixed together took a great toll on me. I walked home and cried by myself for a bit. I felt too guilty about what I saw to talk to my parents about it. I was quite shaken for a few days. He doesn't exactly say what age. He seems to be in his teens because he says older teenager, so he's probably 13 or 14. Now, a child should not be at the age of 13 or 14 and have no idea what sexuality is. And you certainly don't want your children being exposed to pornography as their first view of human sexuality. Um, That's like introducing them to a hamburger by taking them to a slaughterhouse. Uh, And so uh, this is 
that he's not prepared for. And this is part of ignoring him being ignored, being ignored, being ignored, his needs not being met, and his parents not preparing him for anything, preparing him to go to school, preparing him to go uh, to a new country, preparing him to go to summer camp. There's no preparation. And so things are just impacting this young man, like uh, you know, Joe Louis fists to the nads. This was among the very first glimpses I had of sex. Finding out about sex is one of the things that truly destroyed my entire life. Sex, the very word, fills me with hate. Once I hit puberty, I would always want it like any other boy. I would always hunger for it. I would always covet it. I would always fantasize about it. But I would never get it. Not getting any sex is what will shape the very foundation of my miserable youth. This was a very dark day. So he doesn't really know anything about sex, and then he sees pornography and an older teenager watching pornography at a video arcade is most likely a pedophile or a pedophile in the making trawling for young boys or young girls to sexually stimulate with pornography in order to prey upon them sexually. That's my guess. Um, it's just such an unusual thing to do at an arcade of all things. And uh, so uh, this is a, a terrible way. And of course, if his father had affairs or if his father basically acted on lust and given his fetishistic photo- photographing of uh, his girlfriend's butt and publishing it online, uh, sexuality could be considered what or may have been unconsciously processed by the child as what destroyed the marriage, right? So he wants to be like his father and get women, but at the same time, his father's sexual desires may have destroyed the marriage or undermined the marriage and so on. At 14 years old, he started masturbating and developed a very high sex drive, which is odd that it would be so latent for so long and then bang at 14, it sort of comes out of the gate charging, so to speak. He writes, this was the start of hell for me. Going through puberty utterly doomed my existence. It condemned me to live a life of suffering and unfulfilled desires. Even at that young age, I felt depressed because I wanted sex, yet I felt unworthy of it. I didn't think I was ever going to experience sex in reality, and I was right. I never did. I was finally interested in girls, but there was no way I could ever get them, and so my starvation began. Now, he was, I think, five foot seven. He uh, apparently has complained online about having a four-inch penis, and he was like 135 pounds soaking wet. So he was a pretty small guy. And he aimed at what he called these blonde goddesses, you know, like the tens. Uh, he's in L.A., which is not uh, unknown to have attractive women walking the streets. So the question is, why would... I mean, I think he was actually a very good-looking kid. Uh, and uh, why would, you know, a short, slight, insecure guy aim at the tense, because he was reenacting humiliation. The goal in his sexual pursuit was to reenact humiliation, um, female humiliation, which I assume comes from his early childhood. And he didn't have anyone to help him with this, tragically, but it seems pretty clear, at least to me. Um, of course, in hindsight, it's easy, and I recognize all of that, and it would be all the caveats in the world. But he was, you know, I mean, he came from a rich and famous family. He was, you can see videos of him online, walking with his stepmom and his dad at uh, the uh, red carpet premiere for the Hunger Games. He was at the red carpet premieres for all the Star Wars prequels. He was at a private Katy Perry concert. He was constantly tweeting videos of him in his BMW, which his mother bought him, and with his $300 Giorgio Armani sunglasses. 
and uh, photographs of him uh, rela uh, relaxing in first class in, in planes. And I, 48 years, 47 years old, I've traveled all over the world, never flown first class. And so if he wanted to have sex, then he could have simply set his sights lower. I mean, that's what you do, right? You try to get the most attractive person that you can get, generally, when you're a teenager. And if you can't get the 10s, you go for the 9s. And if you can't get the 9s, you go for the 8s. And you keep going down until you get sex. But his goal was self-humiliation, to continue a life of being ignored and treated with contempt and treated with indifference by women, because I assumed that his mother and his stepmother had those tendencies. And he complains about them directly, at least some of them. So the goal of his sexuality was self-humiliation. It was a masochistic drive. It was not actual desire for women who were out of his league. It was to strive to connect with a woman who would treat him with scorn and contempt. Because a lot of young women who are gorgeous feel actually quite insulted when what they view as a beta or uh, even lower on the male hierarchy of attractiveness uh, approaches them. And so he was reenacting cruelty uh, from his early life at the hands of women, and there was no one, it seems, who was able to help him to understand this and deal with the original humiliation. Six years old, Elliot Roger discovered video games, which would later grow into an all-consuming obsession as he tried to escape from his life. I'm not blaming video games. There are hundreds of millions of video game players around the world. They don't become shooters. But again, we're looking at the straws on the camel's back. At 12 years old, Roger discovered World of Warcraft, and that would develop from an interest to a 14-hour-per-day all-consuming obsession. He says, This was the point when my social life ended completely. I would never have a satisfying social life ever again. It was the beginning of a very lonely period of my life in which my only social interactions would be online through video games. The ability to play video games with people online temporarily filled the social void. I got caught up in it, and I was too young and naive to realize the severity of how far I had fallen. I was too scared to accept it. This loss of a social life coupled with the advent of puberty caused me to die a little inside. It was too much for me to handle and I stopped caring about my life and my future. I even stopped caring about what people thought of me. I hid myself away in the online world of Warcraft, a place where I felt comfortable and secure. He played World of Warcraft on his stepmother's computer and um, apparently she had some push back some resistance against this for him, but um, it probably just turned into, if you play World of Warcraft, I'll make you eat my evil Moroccan soup or something. It probably was not actually something where she would try to get to some of the root causes of the problems, because she probably would have found at least some part of a mirror in that. The 4th of July of this year was the day I saved my little brother's life from drowning, he was, um, so he was 15 years old at the time. The party was a pool party. My half-brother, Jazz, had full exposure to the swimming pool. He had already learned how to walk, but he couldn't swim. At one instance, as I was eating lunch, I saw Jazz quickly run off from the adults, completely unattended. I then watched as he curiously examined the water and then descended into steps of the shallow end of the pool. Before long, he lost his footing on the steps and his whole body sank into the water. This reminds me of the parents leaving, the, the mother and father leaving, Elliot unattended while they climbed the castle tower when he ended up grabbing a cactus and getting his hand stuck. This lack of attention, this lack of attentiveness to uh, children uh, is, uh, to me, endemic of or emblematic of an entirely problematic attachment from parent to child. He said, nobody noticed. 
He was going to drown, I thought with panic. I ran as fast as I could, plunging into the water with my clothes still on, and pulled him out. I asked him how he was doing, and he coughed up some water and told me he felt fine. The only person who saw this happen was a little girl who was swimming in the shallow end. I saved his life, and my brother remembers it to this very day. Every single second of my brother's life, everything that happens to him in the future will exist because I pulled him out of the water that day. Now, I mean, this is completely heartbreaking when you think about it, that in a matter of seven years, this young man went from saving lives to taking them, from having an instinctual panic about somebody being harmed or drowning to going on a murderous rampage where he slaughters nine people and injures seven more and then takes his own life. I don't know if there's any particular answers. I, I'm not going to, I'm only going to provide some possible hints. I, I don't have any skill or capacity to, to give any answers if they're even possible. If the rumors about how he was treated by his stepmother are true, then it would be very clear, but they're unsubstantiated as far as I can see. But he did go from saving lives to taking them, and that's it's important for us to understand that. My sex drive was at its peak at this age. Whenever I got back from school, I had to masturbate. The urge was too strong. During my masturbation sessions, I often built elaborate fantasies in my mind that I had a hot, blonde-haired girlfriend to have passionate sex with, almost like having an imaginary girlfriend. I told no one about this, and again, you can see this isolation. In fact, I didn't talk to my parents at all about my sexual development. I felt too guilty and embarrassed about it. Whenever they probed me, I lied to them, telling them that I had no sex drive. My mother once caught me looking at pictures of girls online, and I frantically had to convince her that I stumbled on those pictures by accident. Again, you can't start talking with your kids when they're 15. You have to have the conversation. I started chatting with my daughter when she was still in her mother's womb, for heaven's sakes. You have to have conversations that go on for years. Before you can talk about the difficult things, you need to talk about the easy things. You can't just jump in the deep end without having that connection with your children. At 16 years old, Roger threatened to commit suicide after hearing about a peer's social life. His father, Sumaya, and several friends talked with him for three hours to cheer him up. Threatening to commit suicide is a very serious thing. Suicide, of course, is self-murder. It is not exactly the opposite of the murder of others. You can't murder others unless you've been killed inside yourself. At one point, his parents basically said, oh, by the way, your stepmother is going to Morocco and you're going with her too. And he railed against it. Uh, he was upset about it. He tried to run away. His father caught him and trapped him. And they, it's, he went to Morocco but complained so much that after a week his mother from England came to go and get him. And again, just feeling jumped by other people's needs and unprepared for anything. This is not a child whose needs for connection and preparation. He may have been more sensitive than most, but you, you parent the child that you have, not the child that you wish you had. Uh, and um, if he was more sensitive to change, I don't think he was, but if he was, then you parent for that reality of how his personality is, perhaps even genetically. His father's film project took Peter to 23 countries, and he said in an interview that the previous three years had been tough on his family. He included Elliot in the on-screen credits along with his sister, Georgia. He said, I put my family through a lot of difficulties making this film because I was away a long time. And this is the paternal abandonment that his son felt. Roger, Elliot Roger, had regular issues at school with bullying, anxiety, and an inability to make friends. He detailed multiple occasions where he would yell, cry, and refuse to get out of his parents' car and enter the school building. Eventually, he would end up in the classroom, as expected. And again, 
the child's being bullied. School, it's a pretty toxic environment, especially for the smaller kids, the kids who, are, you know, physically he looked like a 13-year-old. Uh, it is rough. This is a, a pretty Lord of the Flies, peer bullying, lowest common denominator of emotional development environment. And for a sensitive kid to be shoved into that, it's just rough. His parents also set him up for social failure at various points by switching him to different schools and taking long summer vacations, which led, which led to him entering class long after the other students. This further exacerbated his inability to make friends and to fit into social situations. He describes his high school experience below. Quote, As I expected, I failed to make any new friends. I was so overwhelmed by the brutality of the world that I just didn't care anymore. On the very first week, I had my first experience of true bullying. Some horrible 12th, 12th graders saw me as a target because I looked like a 10-year-old and I was physically weak. They threw food at me during lunchtime and after school. It enraged me, but I was too scared to do anything about it. What kind of horrible, depraved people would poke fun at a boy younger than them who has just entered high school, I thought to myself. They teased me because I was scared of girls, calling me names like faggot. People also liked to steal my belongings and run away in an attempt to get me to chase after them. And I did chase after them in a furious rage, but I was so little and weak that they thought it was comical. I hated everyone at that school so much. Well, what can I say? I mean, that this bullying is uh, appalling and atrocious and uh, inevitable. Um, there are schools where there's more mixed age groups and so on, which seems to bring out more compassion, more, more empathy. Uh, in the older kids, but particularly where schools are segregated by age, this seems to be a, a big problem. It got to a point, he said, where I had to wait in a quiet corner for the hallway to clear before I could walk to class. I also took long routes around the school to avoid bullies. My parents began to consider not letting me continue there after ninth grade. Bullies pick on children without parental bonds. I think this is in, absolutely inevitable, and the best way to protect your children from bullying or from pedophiles or from exploitation or, or other forms of abuse is to have an incredibly strong bond with them. That creates this shield, and it is truly tragic that those who have a strong bond don't get bullied, whereas they could actually survive the bullying, whereas the children who don't have strong bonds with parents get bullied, which often pushes them over the edge. So uh, it, is, it is tragic the way that works. Throughout the manifesto, Roger continually notes his jealousy, rage, and anger at the mere presence of individuals in relationships. He expresses disgust when attractive, which is normally for him blonde, women don't notice him, yet repeatedly changed classes when somebody he is attracted to is present out of anxiety. So this is the tortuous world that he lives in, where he is so terrified of rejection by women that he's perhaps even violently attracted to them and even more violently terrified of them. And when you live in that kind of life and, and desire and hatred and fear, literally pulling you in two directions, tearing you in two, life does become agony and a torture. And looking forward to a life of that is literally hell itself. He says repeatedly, as I talked about his programming of his own perspective through repetitive uses of toxic language, he says, I am rotting in loneliness. And when you don't have anything to live for, either suicide or murder, murder-suicide becomes much more likely. And there seems to be nobody who's helping him with this. His parents should have known that he's likely to get bullied. He laments about taking long walks and sitting in public places where no women approach him while not making any effort to speak with them himself. 
and uh, we don't generally live in a culture where women approach men. He's disgusted or infuriated by most men he sees, calling them brutes or criticizing their appearance if he believes his clothing or stature to be superior. And he did sort of elevate himself into an abstract, magnificent godhood and felt that most men were a swine, uh, were incompetent, were uh, brutes, and so on. And um, that is, of course, a recipe uh, for dehumanization, for the dehumanization or, or the creation of what is called the other, uh, where if you can strip other human beings of human characteristics that you could share with them, then it becomes easier to exploit or hurt them. So here's a few of his um, examples. When I drove down, I saw more young couples walking around, and I had the desire to run them over with the Mercedes as a sweet act of revenge. As a child, I played with childhood female friend as an equal. Now she was my enemy. I would take great delight in torturing and flaying her and every single one of her spoiled, obnoxious, evil friends. And again, you can see him programming himself to be capable of great atrocities. He also details multiple occasions of throwing hot coffee or beverages on women or couples and running or driving away. His violent behavior increases to the point where, he, in a drunken stupor, he attempts to push several women off a 10-foot ledge during a party. This, of course, is assault and possibly even attempted murder. Uh, if you push someone off a 10-foot ledge during a party, if they're going to land on concrete, they could very well die. He writes, uh, it, was, it was one of the most foolish and rash things I ever did. And notice that there's no moral content. It's just foolish and rash, not immoral or wrong or evil. It was one of the most foolish and rash things I ever did, and I almost risked everything in doing it. But I was so drunk with rage that I didn't care. I failed to push any of them from the ledge. And the boys started to push me, which resulted in me being the one to fall onto the street. When I landed, I felt a snap in my ankle, followed by a stinging pain. I slowly got up and found that I couldn't even walk. I had to stumble, and stumble I did. I tried to get away from there as fast as I could. The people in, the, in this house must have been friends with the ones I previously fought with. For they greeted me with vicious hostility. They called me names like faggot and pussy. Typical things those types of scumbags would say. A whole group of the obnoxious brutes came up and dragged me onto their driveway, pushing and hitting me. I wanted to fight and kill them all. I managed to throw one punch toward the main attacker, but that only caused them to beat me even more. I fell to the ground where they started kicking me and punching me in the face. Eventually, some other people from the street broke up the fight. I managed to have the strength to stand up and stagger away. Now, it probably doesn't even need to be mentioned that, that he started it, that he was trying to push women off a balcony, and then he plays the victim when people beat him up. It was the first time in my life that I'd been truly beaten up physically to the point where my face was bruised up. I had suffered a lot of bullying in my life, but most of it wasn't physical. I'd never been beaten and humiliated that badly. Everyone in Isla Vista saw what happened, and it was truly horrific. The worst part of this whole ordeal was not getting beaten up. Oh, no, it was the fact that no one showed any concern. There was only one group who helped me to the end of Del Playa. But after that, they abandoned me. Not one girl offered to help me as I stumbled home with a broken leg, beaten and bloody. If girls had been attracted to me, they would have offered to walk me to my room and take care of me. They would have even offered to sleep with me to make me feel better. But no, not one girl showed an ounce of concern for me. They didn't care. No one cared about me. I was all alone. Now, I mean, this, of course, is mad, right? He was trying to assault and possibly even murder some women, and he then feels the victim because nobody cares about him. And 
And this, of course, is a kind of narcissistic entitlement that the world owes you something, and when you don't get it, that um, the world must be punished. And this, to me, is the rage of an infant without a connection with his mother. When you're a child, when you're an infant in particular, the world does owe you. The world does owe you. You can't get things for yourself. The world owes you care, compassion, milk, um, playing, cuddling, body, skin-on-skin body contact and and gentleness and sing-songs and and, and stimulation and playtime and so on. The world does owe you those things. And a baby who does not get what he wants often explodes into crying first and then eventually uh, anger and then eventually rage. And so when you think of him as a large infant, then with fantastic verbal skills for for an infant, obviously, then you can understand that the sense of entitlement comes from a very early time in his life and was appropriate to a very early time in his life. It's not appropriate when he's 16 or 17 or 18 or 20 or 22, but it is appropriate when he's six months or a year or 18 months or two or three or four. It is appropriate. You are entitled and you have every right to get angry when the universe, when your caregivers do not provide you what you need because you have to tell them that you're unhappy, right, when that, when that occurs. So thinking, like, so this level of entitlement and this level of madness is not mad for an infant, right? The infant screams and then expects the parents to be loving, right? And he attacks and then is, is offended and upset and enraged that people don't deal with him affectionately. Again, this is all highly appropriate to an infant, and it shows the degree to which unmet, legitimate unmet needs can stretch through time to the point where he's much more dangerous, infinitely more dangerous than an infant could ever be. So his father is of British descent, his mother is of Chinese descent. He describes himself as a beautiful Eurasian and continually mentions his desire to obtain a beautiful blonde white girl. Throughout the manifesto, Eliot is appalled when brutes of different races are able to date blonde white girls while he remains a virgin. Below are a few of these sorts of statements. How could an ugly Asian attract the attention of a white girl while a beautiful Eurasian like myself never had any attention from them? Uh, Carlin was half Hawaiian and half Mexican, and he wasn't that good looking. How on earth could he have managed to sleep with four girls in Isla Vista while I have been there for two years and had none? How could an inferior, ugly black boy be able to get a white girl and not me? I am beautiful. And I am half-white myself. I am descended from British aristocracy. He is descended from slaves. I deserve it more. I tried not to believe his foul words, but they were already said, and it was hard to erase from my mind. If this is actually true, if this ugly black filth was able to have sex with a blonde white girl at the age of 13 while I've had to suffer virginity all my life, then this just proves how ridiculous the female gender is. They would give themselves to this filthy scum, but they reject me? The injustice! It is shocking, uh, but entirely predictable, that this is more a race crime than anything else. This, this um, murder spree in Santa Barbara on Friday. He targeted blonde white girls. And this is a... And blonde... Sorry, blonde white girls and good-looking people, generally whites. But his hatred was for blonde white girls. And that is as much a racial crime as it is 
a gender crime. The gender is the result of him being heterosexual and rejected by women, but the racial element is very specific. And if you can imagine, if a half, uh, if a half white guy had targeted only black women, then this would be a racial hate crime. I mean, this was the Zimmerman Martin thing to some degree, where Zimmerman was half white and there was a black altercation and he was continually accused of racism. It was portrayed as a race crime. So if a half-white man had specifically said, I'm going to go out and shoot black women, then this would be a racial hate crime. And there would be gender involved, of course, but the overtones would be talked about as, as racist. But there's no racism poss possible here because the victims are whites, and whites can't be the victims of racism, apparently. I mean, this is, I guess that's what's called white privilege. But that's incredibly racist in and of itself. I just really wanted to point this out, that, that most often what is most illuminating in society is what is absent from a particular discourse. And without a doubt, he continually talked about his obsession to have sex with um, blonde white women, uh, his hatred for what he viewed as inferior races having sex with blonde white women, and he said he wanted to go out and shoot all the blonde sluts at a particular fraternity, a sorority, sorry. And so this was a race crime, at least as much as it was a gender crime, and yet nobody, to my knowledge, is talking about the intense racial aspect, the race crime aspect of this, uh, which is horribly racist. Elliot's had very high financial demand expectations for his family. He wrote extensively about how wearing designer clothing, expensive sunglasses and jewelry temporarily boosted his self-esteem and continued to think that money would solve his issues with women. Or, as one man somewhat cruelly wrote on the web, uh, if you are a good-looking guy from a rich Hollywood royalty family in L.A. with a BMW and you can't get laid, you deserve to die a virgin. He said, my father's movie was released, but it didn't do well at all. He stupidly invested all of his money into the movie, and he got absolutely nothing out of it. What a bitter coincidence that right at the point when my life fell even deeper into agony, my father is cursed with this financial crisis. Right at the time when I needed my father's support the most, he lost all of his assets. It was as if some malevolent being cursed me with bad luck. I truly had no advantage at all. The universe was not kind to me. Where is he getting all these ideas that the universe should respond to him? We'll find out in a moment. I would... I've still preferred it if my mother had gotten married to a wealthy man and moved into a mansion. I still continued to pester her to do this, and she still stubbornly refused. I will always re resent my mother for refusing to do this. If not for her sake, she should have done it for mine. Joining a family of great wealth would have truly saved my life. I would have had a high enough status to attract beautiful girlfriends and live above all of my enemies. All of my horrific troubles would have been erased or eased instantly. It is very selfish of my mother to not consider this. So he basically wanted his mother to be a high-priced prostitute to raise his social uh, and sexual status. Again, I mean, this, at this point, uh, his capacity for empathy and the, the panic that he showed at his brother's near death uh, seems to have gone completely. While in college, his mother gave him a BMW 3 Series Coupe. His social situation remained unchanged. And um, where was he getting the idea that women... Beautiful women were attracted to status. Well, because it's all over the, the Hollywood scene. It's all over the L.A. scene that uh, beautiful women go there to milk money and status out of their beauty. So, again, this is part of the culture that he lived in. Again, I'm not saying it's causal, but it is another one of the straws on the camel's back. Elliot Roger also became obsessed with the lottery. 
believing that the instant riches it could provide would enable him to find the blonde white girlfriend he intensely desired. The older I grew, the more I realized how important money was, and this, and the more obsessed I would become about getting rich. This obsession, which was barely taking root at the time, sparked a long relationship with the lottery that would only end in disappointment and despair. My father, here we go, my father gave me a book called The Secret. The book explained the fundamentals of a concept known as the law of attraction, which is delusional and psychotic fundamentally. The idea is that you ask the universe for stuff and the universe listens and gives it to you. And if you don't, it's your own damn fault. And you have every desire, like you have every um, right to get angry, right? I mean, so basically the universe owes you a debt. Like if I lend you a thousand bucks, you owe me that thousand bucks back at some point. If you don't pay me, then I can take you to court, right? I can get the money to small claims court and get the money back. And so you put your desires out like you're lending the universe $1,000, and then the universe is supposed to pay you back. And when the universe doesn't pay you back, then you are not being given what you legitimately are owed. And the law of attraction is basically, um, it's the conceptual steroid pumping of the infantile desire for legitimate entitlement, uh, turning it into an adult sense of narcissistic entitlement and it's incredibly dangerous in my humble opinion again lots of people have read the book they're not mass murderers but uh, i think it's another brick in the wall so to speak he said i believe that the only way for me to attain this wealth at the time was to win the lottery and that is what i visualized doing right so if you want money i guess one thing you can do is go out and work really hard and try to make something of yourself or you can sit at home in your dark room and visualize lots of money coming your way uh, this is what's so incredibly dangerous about that. It. Not only does it promote a sense of entitlement and rage at not being given what you are owed, but it also paralyzes people in the pursuit of legitimate desires by telling them that it's just going to come to them somehow, right? He said, I believed that it was my destiny to win the Mega Millions lottery. He goes on to describe a near-endless purchase of Mega Million lottery tickets, with a high and uh, high and excitement, a high and excitement of the prospect of winning, followed by increasingly extreme lows once the numbers were drawn, and he did not win. I sank into one of the worst depressions of my life. It was spring break, and while all the other young boys my age were going after vacation with their attractive friends, I was feeling miserable and alone in my room because I failed to win the lottery jackpot that would enable me to rise above them all. Then he went to he would he would go across uh, to. Um, to other states to go and buy these things, uh, hundreds of dollars worth of tickets and so on. He said, I didn't win. I looked at my ticket over and over again and then at the winning numbers. No match. It was just like what happened in March, except this was worse because I'd built up anticipation for the entire summer. The winner was some guy from Riverside. He took my money. What a waste. What an injustice. And again, I'm not saying this is exactly the secret, but this idea that the universe owes the money to you because you really want it. And this guy took his money. The universe gave the money to him that it should have given to me because I really wanted it. I mean, this is not healthy stuff to be imbibing. He later discovered the Powerball lottery, which hadn't yet come to California. This began a series of trips to Arizona to purchase tickets. When I reached the end of my stack of tickets, I didn't find any that matched. I didn't win. I had driven all the way to Arizona just to buy lottery tickets because I was so desperate for a happy life in which girls would be attracted to me. I was so certain I would win, building up all that hope, only to have it shattered right before me at just that moment. And again, this self-talk of the universe is being unkind to me, I never have any luck, just at that exact moment, this is how people talk themselves into a kind of madness. Um, ma madness is 
um, setting an edifice of hysterical language against a rather bland reality of things like bad luck and things like odd coincidences and so on. And people build these like ice castles in the mountains, so to speak, against reality, and they start to go and live in, in that language. And reality must be punished for failing to conform and people within it. After repeated failed attempts to win the lottery, Roger describes a tear-soaked phone conversation tantrum, which deeply disturbed his parents, who then arranged for him to see a psychiatrist. Starting at age 13, Roger describes seeing a series of psychiatrists, psychologists, coaches, and counselors. Many of the coaches and counselors were near his own age and would try to teach him social skills. He would often grow jealous and resentful of these coaches when perceiving that women were attracted to them. So again, whenever there's a possibility of a bond, he shatters that bond. He shreds that bond. He tears at that bond. He attacks that bond with feelings of jealousy, hyper-competitiveness, and rage. So again, this is a guy to whom bonding evokes an agony of a lack of bonding. And therefore, whenever he gets close to anyone, he has to lash out because it brings him too close to whatever he experienced early on in life. I don't know why my parents wasted money on therapy, he said, as it will never help me in my struggle against such a cruel and unjust world. Again, these language that he's building up over and over again. The doctor ended up dismissing it by prescribing me a controversial medication, risperidone. After researching this medication, I found that it was the absolute wrong thing for me to take. I refused to take it and never saw psychiatrists again after that. Risperidone apparently is an antipsychotic drug mainly used to treat schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and irritability in people with autism. Apparently, Asperger's is at one end of the autism spectrum or scale, and he certainly was irritable. Then he lost his games. The more lonely I felt, the more angry I became. The anger slowly built up inside me throughout all of the dark years. Even after the release of the new World of Warcraft expansion, I noticed that the game's ability to alleviate my sense of loneliness was starting to fade. I began to feel lonely even while playing it, and I often broke down in tears in the middle of my World of Warcraft sessions. I began to ask myself what the point was in playing this game anymore. I spent less and less time playing it. Again, I would argue, amateur, outside, idiot opinion, to be sure, but I would argue that the, uh, the loneliness was the result of being the child of parents that he did not bond with. And this ache of loneliness, this constant substitution of masturbation, of, of sexuality, of drunkenness. He had a big problem with alcohol, of video games. These are all attempts to drug himself and escape this original loneliness that he probably felt in the crib. Um, significant amounts of mental dysfunction result from the avoidance of legitimate suffering. And uh, I think this is one case in point. I began to have fantasies of becoming very powerful and stopping everyone from having sex. I wanted to take their sex away from them, just like they took it away from me. I saw sex as an evil and barbaric act, all because I was unable to have it. This was the major turning point. My anger made me stronger inside. This was when I formed my ideas that sex should be outlawed. It is the only way to make the world a fair and just place. If I can't have it, I will destroy it. That's the conclusion I came to right then and there. So when he was unable to feel any sense of connection, even through video games, the feelings of destruction began to arise. At the beginning of the winter break, I decided to quit playing World of Warcraft entirely. On my last day on the game, I had a long emotional conversation with a friend where I opened up about all of my troubles. I told him about all my newfound views of the world and my belief that sex must be abolished.
there's no comment on what happened with this conversation. I formed an ideology in my head of how the world should work. I was fueled both by my desire to destroy all of the injustices of the world and to exact revenge on everyone I envy and hate. I decided that my destiny in life is to rise to power so I can impose my ideology on the world and set everything right. So, because he feels small and insignificant and alienated and rejected and excluded, the compensatory fantasy is, is megalomania, right? It's delusions of, of grandeur. As time progressed, I realized how hopeless everything in my life was. The chances that I will ever rise to power and right the wrongs of this world were extremely slim. I had absolutely no idea or plan of how to acquire any sort of power. I was naive. It was naive of me to think that I could one day become a dictator. The only thing I could do was fantasize about it. All I had ever wanted was to love women, but their behavior has only earned my hatred. I wanted to have sex with them and make them feel good, but they would be disgusted at the prospect. To love women. All I ever wanted was to love women. I believe that there's a maternal element in that. They have no sexual attraction towards me. It is such an injustice, and I vehemently questioned why things had to be this way. Why do women behave like vicious, stupid, cruel animals who take delight in my suffering and starvation? Why do they have a perverted sexual attraction for the most brutish of men instead of gentlemen of intelligence? Well, this, of course, is the great contradiction of twisted male sexual desires, perhaps of females too, I don't know. But he only wanted women for their physical attractiveness. And then he complains that they don't appreciate his intelligence and sophistication and gentlemanly behavior and refinement and world travel. So he basically just wanted them because they were physically attractive and then got enraged at them for not finding him physically attractive but instead talked all about his refinement and sophistication and this and that and the other. Well, he could have found a refined and sophisticated and well-traveled woman who didn't have to be encased in the body of a blonde goddess 10. But again, at this point, uh, uh, I would argue that the, the infantile bonding needs have completely broken free of any form of restraint and the language is only fueling them. And he is projecting uh, his uh, early abandonments and rejections at the hands of his caregivers on women as a whole, and uh, because at this point the brakes seem to be completely off his developing insanity, whether this could have been stopped or not at this point is, uh, is hard to know. I concluded he said that women are flawed. There is something mentally wrong with the way their brains are wired, as if they haven't evolved from animal-like thinking. They are incapable of reason or thinking rationally. They are like animals, completely controlled by their primal, depraved emotions and impulses. Project much? That is why they are attracted to barbaric, wild, beast-like men. They are beasts themselves. Beasts should not be able to have any rights in a civilized society. If their wickedness is not contained, the whole of humanity will be held back from advancement to a more civilized state. Women should not have the right to choose who to mate with. That choice should be made for them by civilized men of intelligence. If women had the freedom to choose which men to mate with, like they do today, they would breed with stupid, degenerate men, which would only produce stupid, degenerate offspring. This, in turn, would hinder the advancement of humanity. So this is kind of like Nazi-based eugenics. Not only hinder it, but devolve humanity completely. Women are like plague, like a plague that must be quarantined. When I came to this brilliant, perfect revelation, I felt like everything was now clear to me, in a bitter, twisted way. I am one of the few people on, the, in the world, on this world who has the intelligence to see this. I am like a god, and my purpose is to exact ultimate retribution on all the impurities I see in the world.
Well, of course, the, the, the basic reality, and you hear this from, from people who hate their marriage partner or whatever, it's like, well, then leave, right? If women are so repulsive, then stop trying to date them. I mean, obviously, right? I mean, if you find out some woman you're attracted to has some sort of hell-baked infernal crotch rot, then you're going to say, well, maybe I'll not date this person, right? <laughs> because it's not good, right? Uh, and so if they are as uh, hideous, of course, then stop, right? But his, it's his own sexual impulses that he's hating because uh, as, a, as an infant, he was powerless to the whim of the women around him. And as an adult... Uh, male, he feels his sexual desire makes him helpless to the whims of the cruel and beautiful women around him. And again, this is where infantile rage combined with adult resourcefulness uh, is uh, an incredibly dangerous combination. In fully realizing these truths about the world, I have created the ultimate and perfect ideology of how a fair and pure world would work. In an ideal world, sexuality would not exist. It must be outlawed. In a world without sex, humanity will be pure and civilized. Men will grow up healthily without having to worry about such a barbaric act. All men will grow up fair and equal because no man will be able to experience the pleasure of sex while others are denied it. The human race will evolve to an entirely new level of civilization completely devoid of all the impurity and degeneracy that exists today. Now, leftism, egalitarianism, liberalism, socialism, communism, all of the evening out ideologies uh, may perhaps play a role, a small role, to be fair, uh, in this idea that uh, violence is perfectly acceptable in redistributing the goods of this world, whether the goods are, are money or, or opportunity or education or sexuality or sexual experiences. The idea that violence is an acceptable way of redistributing the resources in this world to make things fairer is something that is such a common trope, such a common standard in Western civilization, that it may have had a small part to play in his idea that he was owed something and that violence should be used to redistribute the goods and services of the world, whether sexual or financial, from those who had more to those who had less, to each according to their need, from each according to their ability. And again, these all are pieces of jigsaw puzzle or straws on the camel's back. In order to completely abolish sex, he writes, women themselves would have to be abolished. All women must be quarantined, like the plagues that they are, so that they can be used in a manner that actually benefits a civilized society. In order to carry this out, there must exist a new and powerful type of government under the control of one divine ruler, such as myself. The ruler that establishes this new order would have complete control over every aspect of society in order to direct it towards a good and pure place. At the disposal of this government, there needs to be a highly trained army of fanatically loyal troops in order to enforce such revolutionary laws. And, of course, the helpless dream of power. And the more helpless you are, the more violent the power you dream of. And he's dreaming of universal dictatorship with him as the dictator. The first strike against women will be to quarantine all of them in concentration camps. At these camps, what's interesting is that he railed against going to camps when he was a summer. Now the women are going to camps, right? Against their will. He was sent to camp against his will as well. At these camps, the vast majority of the female population will be deliberately starved to death. That would be an efficient and fitting way to kill them all off. I would take great pleasure and satisfaction in condemning every single woman on earth starved to death. I would have an enormous tower built just for myself where I can oversee the entire concentration camp and gleefully watch them all die. If I can't have them, no one will. I'd imagine thinking to myself as I oversee this, 
Women represent everything that is unfair with this world, and in order to make the world a fair place, they must, be, uh, they must all be eradicated. A few women would be spared, however, for the sake of reproduction. These women would be kept and bred in secret labs. There, they will be artificially inseminated with sperm samples in order to produce offspring. Their depraved nature will slowly be bred out of them in time. And the degree to which he feels that women have had power over them, destructive power over him, is the degree, of course, to which he wishes to have destructive power over women. And this can't come from any other place. Again, in my admittedly amateur opinion, this can't come from any other place than an infant infant experience, an infant who is completely dependent upon a cruel uh, or indifferent woman. Uh, This degree of helplessness that he experienced, I would assume, or I believe, that he experienced as an infant is then projected into basically returning, quote, the favor to women as a whole by putting them in concentration camps, i.e. into cribs, and starving and neglecting them. Future generations of men would be oblivious to these remaining women's existence, and that is for the best. If a man grows up without knowing of the existence of women, there will be no desire for sex. Sexuality will completely cease to exist. Love will cease to exist. There will no longer be any imprint of such concepts in the human psyche. It is the only way to purify the world. In such a pure world, the man's mind can develop to greater heights than ever before. Future generations will live their lives free of having to worry about the barbarity of sex and women which will enable them to expand their intelligence and advance the human race to a state of perfect civilization. It is such a shameful pity that my ideal world cannot be created. I realized long ago that there is no way I could possibly rise to such a level of power in my lifetime with the way the world is now. Such a thing will never become a reality for me, but it did give me something to fantasize about as I burned with hatred towards all women for rejecting me throughout the years. This whole viewpoint and ideology of abolishing sex stems from being deprived of it all my life. If I cannot have it, I will do everything I can to destroy it. My orchestration of the Day of Retribution, which turned out to be Friday in Santa Barbara, is my attempt to do everything in my power to destroy everything I cannot have. This, um, what Nietzsche called the resentment, which is, uh, if you can't have it, it must be destroyed, uh, is, is the hope that in destroying the object of desire, you can destroy your own twisted desire, uh, which he knows he can't do, which is why he ended up shooting himself. All of these, those beautiful girls I've desired so much in my life, but I can never have because they despise and loathe me, I will destroy. All of those popular people who live hedonistic lives of pleasure, I will destroy because they never accepted me as one of them. I will kill them all and make them suffer just as they have made me suffer. It is only Fair. So again, you see this entitlement, which again, I assume is based in infancy. Why do things have to be this way? I'm sure that is the question everyone would be asking after the day of retribution is over. They will all be asking why. Indeed, why? That is the question I've had for everyone throughout all my years of suffering. Why was I condemned to live a life of misery and worthlessness while other men were able to experience the pleasures of sex and love with women? I assume he means his father. Why do things have to be this way? I ask all of you. Well, if he he had a ghost, I would say, well, it's because you were a creepy narcissistic loner who freaked everyone out who came in contact with him. And that's probably one of the reasons why, since you gave up an intense Patrick Bateman tuning fork vibe of inner hellscape, that people probably, uh, you know, were less uh, enthusiastic about spending time with you. All I ever wanted was to love women and in turn to be loved by them back. 
their behavior towards me has only earned my hatred, and rightfully so. I am the true victim in all of this, uh, the self-pity of the imminent murderer. I am the good guy. Humanity struck at me first by condemning me to experience so much suffering. I didn't ask for this. I didn't want this. I didn't start this war. I wasn't the one who struck first. But I will finish it by striking back. I will punish everyone, and it will be beautiful. Finally, at long last, I can show the world my true worth. Again, this is the dangers of language, and it's so important to be conscious of how you're talking to yourself and the world that you're building around yourself. I started considering, he says, the possibility of having to carry out a violent act of revenge as the final solution to dealing with all of the injustices I've had to face at the hands of women and society. I came up with a name for this after I saw all the good-looking young couples walking around my college and in the town of Isla Vista. I named it the Day of Retribution. It would be the day in which I exact, exact my ultimate retribution and revenge on all of the hedonistic scum who enjoyed lives of pleasure that they don't deserve. If I can't have it, I will destroy it. I will destroy all women because I can never have them. I will make them all suffer for rejecting me. I will arm myself with deadly weapons and wage a war against all women and the men they are attracted to. And I will slaughter them like the animals they are. And if they won't accept me among them, then they are my enemies. They showed me no mercy, and in turn, I will show them no mercy. The prospect will be so sweet, and justice will be ultimately served. And of course, I would have to die in the act to avoid going to prison. Without the prospect of becoming wealthy at a young age, I had nothing to live for now. I was going to be a virgin outcast forever. At this point, it fully dawned on me that the possibility of having to resort to exacting this retribution was more real than ever before. I realized that I had to start planning and preparing for the day of retribution, even though I hadn't yet had any idea of what day that would be. My first act of preparation was the purchase of my first handgun. I did this quickly and hastily at a local gun shop called Goletta Gun and Supply. I had already done some research on handguns, and I decided to purchase the Glock 34 semi-automatic pistol, an efficient and highly accurate weapon. My next step towards planning for it was to buy my second handgun, a 6-hour P226. I also needed to buy a third handgun just in case one of them jams. I needed two working handguns at the same time, as that was how I planned to commit suicide, with two simultaneous shots to the head. I also needed to buy magazine clips and ammunition, as well as knives and carrying cases for my equipment. I had an argument with Sumaya while I was visiting Father's house. It started when she began to boast that my brother Jazz was recently signed by an agent to act in TV commercials. I talked about how Jazz was already so socially savvy for his age, and how I'd always envied him for it. She told me that he will never have any problems with girls and will lose his virginity while he's young. Oh, Sumaya, Sumaya, Sumaya. That's pretty fucking cruel, if you don't mind me saying so. That is extremely cruel for a child who is a young man at this pace, who you know is tortured by his lack of social abilities and his failures with women, to brag and parade your son in front of him is an act of exquisite quasi-maternal sadism and is an unholy thing to have done to your disturbed son. Uh, I'm just, I'm sorry. I mean, sorry even for the swearing, but it is just unbelievably cruel to, um, to do that. He was actually being vulnerable, saying, I envy his social ease. And she's like, oh, yeah. He's never going to have any problems with girls. He's going to lose his virginity while he's young. Now, again, 
this is a young boy talking about losing his virginity while he's young is the act of a sexually disturbed woman and the sadism and cruelty that she is exhibiting towards her stepson is probably one of the, I would argue, again, from an outsider's perspective with all the hindsight in the world, is one of the things that is driving his hatred towards attractive women, right? I mean, it's not women out there who cause men's uh, hostility towards women. It's women within the family, I would argue, almost always. This is an act of unbelievable sadism and cruelty towards a vulnerable and unstable young man. And again, this is his describing of it, but if this has happened, he said, I had to sit there and listen to the bitch tell me that my little brother will grow up enjoying the life I have always craved for but missed out on. It is very unfair how some boys are able to live such pleasurable lives while I never had any taste of it, and now it has been confirmed to me that my little brother will become one of them. He will become a popular kid who gets all the girls. Girls will love him. He will become one of my enemies. Good job, stepmom. That was the day that I decided I would have to kill him on the day of retribution. I will not allow the boy to surpass me at everything, to live the life I've always wanted. It's not fair that he has the chance to have a pleasurable life while I've been denied it. It would be a hard thing to do because... I had really bonded with my little brother in the last year, and he respected and looked up to me. But I would have to do it. If I can't live a pleasurable life, then neither will he. I will not let him put my legacy to shame. Right, so the murderous uh, and, and sadistic impulse passes from the stepmother to Elliot, which will then be taken out on Jazz. In order to kill Jazz, I would have to kill Sumaya too, but that will be easy. All I would need to do is think about all the hurtful things she has said to me in the past as I plunge my knife into her neck, right? Because the neck is where her voice is coming from. The neck is where her words are coming from. He has experienced her language as knives to him, and this is the enactment in return. But what if father is in the house to stop me? Would I have to kill him too? That would be too much. I remember when I was a child, I had dreams about my father dying, and I woke up crying to my mother. And she would comfort me and tell me that it was just a dream. How could my life have resorted to the point where I, I am the one to kill my own father? I felt sick to my stomach. I concluded that I would have to set the day of retribution during a time when my father is out of the country on one of his business trips. It would be too risky to try and kill him. I might hesitate at the last second. So he has some bond with his uh, father So, as mentioned, Roger uh, Elliott uh, uploaded a series of videos to YouTube hinting at his ideology. He says, after, this is what he writes in his manifesto, after only a week since I uploaded those videos on YouTube, I heard a knock on my apartment door. I opened it to see about seven police officers asking for me. As soon as I saw those cops, the biggest fear I had ever felt in my life overcame me. I had the striking and devastating fear that someone had somehow discovered what I was planning to do and reported me for it. If that was the case, the police would have searched my room and found all of my guns and weapons, along with my writings about what I planned to do with them. I would have been thrown in jail, denied of the chance to exact revenge on my enemies. I can't imagine a hell darker than that. Thankfully, that wasn't the case, but it was so close. I mean, I, I, I don't, what, what, what can be said? 
Apparently someone saw my videos and became instantly suspicious of me. The police interrogated me outside for a few minutes asking me if I had suicidal thoughts. I tactfully told them that it was all a misunderstanding and they finally left. If they had demanded to search my room, that would have ended everything. For a few horrible seconds I thought it was all over. When they left, the biggest wave of relief swept over me. It was so scary. Why wouldn't the police look up if he'd bought a bunch of guns? I mean, they can figure out your, the, the status of your driver's license when they pull you over or whether you're on parole. Could they not ping the gun registry and find out if this unstable young man who's talking about killing people had actually purchased a few guns? I mean, seven cops showed up. Wouldn't one of them have pinged this to find this out? Who can explain? Who can understand? He says, on the day before the day of retribution, I will start the first phase of my vengeance. Silently killing as many people as I can around Isla Vista by luring them into my apartment through some form of trickery. The first people I would have to kill are my two housemates to secure the entire apartment for myself as my personal torture and killing chamber. After that, I will start luring people into my apartment, knock them out with a hammer and slit their throats. I will torture some of the good-looking people before I kill them, assuming that the good-looking ones had the best sex lives. All of that pleasure they had in life I will punish by bringing them pain and suffering. I have lived a life of pain and suffering, and it was time to bring that pain to people who actually deserve it. I will cut them, flay them, strip all the skin off their flesh, and pour boiling water all over them while they are still alive, as well as any other form of torture I could possibly think of. When they are dead, I will behead them and keep their heads in a bag, for their heads will play a major role in the final phase. The final phase will represent my vengeance against all of the men who have had pleasurable sex lives while I've had to suffer. Things will be fair once I make them suffer as I did. I will finally even the score. See again, it's not just women that he hates. Uh, he's an equal opportunity hatist. The second phase will take place on the day of retribution itself, just before the climactic massacre. The second phase will represent my war on women. I will punish all females for the crime of depriving me of sex. They have starved me of sex for my entire youth and gave, gave that pleasure to other men. In doing so, they took many years of my life away. I cannot kill every single female on earth, but I can deliver a devastating blow that will shake all of them to the core of their wicked hearts. I will attack the very girls who represent everything I hate in the female gender. The hottest sorority of UCSB. After doing a lot of extensive research within the last year, I found out that the sorority with the most beautiful girls is Alpha Phi Sorority. I know exactly where their house is, and I've sat outside it in my car to stalk them many times. Alpha Phi Sorority is full of hot, beautiful, blonde girls, the kind of girls I've always desired, but was never able to have, because they all look down on me. They're all spoiled, heartless, wicked bitches. They think they are superior to me, and if I ever tried to ask one on a date, they would reject me cruelly. I will sneak into their house at around 9 p.m. on the day of retribution, just before all of the partying starts, and slaughter every single one of them with my guns and knives. If I have time, I will set their whole house on fire. Then we shall see who the superior one really is. The final phase of the day of retribution will be my ultimate showdown in the streets of Isla Vista. On the morning before, I will drive down to my father's house to kill my little brother, denying him of the chance to grow up to surpass me, along with my stepmother, Sumaya, as she will be in the way. My father will be away on one of his business trips, so thankfully I won't have to deal with him. If he didn't go away on that trip, I might 
even have to postpone the whole plan because of my fear that I might hesitate if I have to kill him. Once I've taken care of my brother and stepmother, I will switch over to the Mercedes SUV and drive it back up to Isla Vista. I will use it as one of my killing machines against my enemies. An SUV will cause a lot more damage than my BMW coupe. After I have killed all of the sorority girls of the Alpha Phi house, I will quickly get into the SUV before the police arrive, assuming they would arrive within three minutes. I will then make my way to Del Playa, splattering as many of my enemies as I can with the SUV and shooting anyone I don't splatter. I can only imagine how sweet it will be to ram the SUV into all of those groups of popular young people who I've always witnessed walking right in the middle of the road, as if they are better than everyone else. When they are writhing in pain, their bodies broken and dying, after I splattered them, they will fully realize their crimes. We'll talk about that in a sec. Once I reach Del Playa Street, I will dump the bag of severed heads I have saved from my previous victims, proclaiming to everyone how much I've made them all suffer. Once they see all of their friends' heads roll onto the street, everyone will fear me as the powerful god I am. I will then start massacring everyone on, Playa, on Del Playa Street. I will pull up next to a house party and fire bullets at everyone partying on the front yard. I will specifically target the good-looking people and all of the couples. After I have destroyed a house party, I will continue down Del Playa, destroying everything and everyone. When I see the first police car come to their rescue, I will drive away as fast as I can, shooting and ramming anyone in my path until I find a suitable place to finally end my life. To end my life, I will quickly swallow all of the Xanax and Vicodin pills I have left. So I assume he's been taking some of these mind-altering drugs along with an ample amount of hard liquor. Immediately after imbibing this mixture, I will shoot myself in the head with two of my handguns simultaneously. If the gunshots don't kill me, the deadly drug mixture eventually will. I will not suffer being captured and sent to prison. I must plan this very efficiently. Nothing can go wrong. It needs to be perfect. This is now my sole purpose on this world. My plans will come to fruition, and I mustn't let anyone stop me. So... Someone on an online forum said to Elias, I see you got rid of those serial killer-esque videos on YouTube. And the police who'd seen the videos apparently come away from the interview thinking he's a perfectly nice and normal fellow. You really can't look to protection from these people. If you are going to have an enormously ambitious career, it may not be the best idea to have children. Maybe there was something genetic with this young man. I mean, probably we'll never know for sure. But uh, if the, you, you never know if you're going to have maybe a needy and, and hypersensitive kid. Um, you just don't Maybe you'll have a really resilient kid who can bounce back from anything, or maybe you won't. But the degree of ambition that is shown by people uh, means that they're just less available for their children. And if you have a child who's going off the rails, and you can get mad at the child if you want and say it's his fault, although if it's genetics, it's not his fault at all, but you are going to need to be present and you need to adjust your parenting for the needs of your children. If you have a high-needs child, then you need to adjust your parenting accordingly. And I can't imagine what is going through the father's head now. I mean, it must just be unbearable. The idea, of course, that he would uh, spend uh, three years of his life on a, docu- on a failed documentary while neglecting his son, who ended up in this situation, uh, must be... Uh, must not look like the wisest choice at the moment. 
schools are toxic, particularly for sensitive kids, particularly for uh, smaller kids, shorter kids, um, kids who are later to develop uh, in terms of puberty, and uh, they are toxic. Uh, it is a brutal environment. It is kind of like The Hunger Games. It's one of the reasons why those films are so popular. Uh, the makers of The Hunger Games, the, it was originally you couldn't go uh, as a kid. They made uh, changes to, to the scripts, and then the, the, the films were released so that anyone 12 and over could go to those films, and even 12, under 12, could, if accompanied by an adult, could go. These are not films that are suitable for young teens or children, uh, even mid-teens. They are full of horrific scenes of unbelievable violence, uh, kids being killed with hammers, uh, kids being pulled apart by ravenous dogs, uh, uh, just unbelievable levels of hysterical violence, and this is not great uh, for this. Uh, the, the love of violence that we have as a culture uh, is toxic to the unstable among us, and we really do have to question the degree to which we are addicted to violence rather than... I mean, you can have intelligent thrillers, you can have uh, imaginative thrillers, you can get excitement from films without watching people getting shredded up by buzzsaws or bludgeoned to death with hammers. This is... Uh, it is to our desire for stimulation as porn is to our sexual desires. Uh, it is um, over the top and uh, I think ultimately can be destructive. Peer relationships are very powerful in a school situation. Uh, as Dr. Philip Zambardo has pointed out, when we evolved as a species, there were four adults for every one child in society, extended families, aunts, uncles, grandparents, and so on. And this is rarely the case anymore. Now kids uh, are shipped off to school for seven uh, or more hours a day, and the parents are busy, come home late, uh, busy fixing dinner and, and helping them with homework, and there's not a chance for relaxed and intimate conversations, the kind of relaxed intimacy that has you really know your child, really get to know your child. And uh, in the absence of strong bonds with parents, the, our natural desire for bonding goes horizontal. And if that is thwarted, as I pointed out, isolation and inchoate rage can occur. You must, must, must keep talking to your kids. If I had a son who came home from a party with a broken leg and facial lacerations and bruises, I would not stop until I had found out what happened. I would drive over to the party. I would try and find out. I would figure things out. We'd call the cops. If my son had initiated violence, then we would deal with that. But... Uh, you know, there, there's no comment on what happens uh, in particular after all of this. But these are signs of a child going seriously off the rails as are talks of suicide. Um, materialism. Materialism, materialism, materialism. It is the quality of our minds and hearts that truly matters in the long run, not the amount of toys we die surrounded by. This young man was desperate for cues from his society about how to act because he did not have a bond with his father, at least not a strong bond with his father. He complained that his, he felt abandoned by his father. His need for a template for how to act, we inherit our actions from the culture and adults around us, which is why kids who grow up in Morocco are kind of Moroccan, and kids who grow up in New York are kind of New York, and uh, kids who grow up in Tunisia are kind of Tunisian, and Muslim kids are Muslim, from Muslim parents. And we, we are imprinted by those around us. And if you are not imprinting your children, then you are letting peers and culture do it for you, particularly if you come from a non-religious 
culture. Uh, and it seems that the father was very critical and hostile towards organized religion. So if you're not imprinting behavior and norms and expectations on your child, then you are really going to rely on the culture and uh, on the child's peers to do that. And that is going to lead your peers astray. Children cannot parent other children. And the culture has no interest in parenting your children, only profiting from them by stimulating their most base desires and uh, instincts, right? They plug into the reptile brain because that gets them to cough up the most money. Uh, children, when they're young, when they're teenagers, the human brain does not fully mature until one's mid-20s. And when you're younger, you don't think about consequences, you think about immediate stimulation. Uh, sex and violence and materialism are easy ways to stimulate yourself, uh, and uh, they tend to blur out the more refined and deep pleasures of art and philosophy and sophisticated conversation and the pursuit of moral excellence and moral courage and so on. It's like jamming your face full of sugar every day and then wondering why broccoli doesn't taste good anymore, right? Uh, this hyperstimulation of the nervous system that the immature lizard brain gets plugged into by culture and Hollywood in particular uh, tends to displace the more sophisticated and refined pleasures that are, I think, the basis of a long-term and sustainable happiness in life, uh, which is why this kid was like, I have $300 sunglasses. Why won't women sleep with me? Right? Uh, and was there hypergamy going on, like this trading up or, or, or trading uh, sexuality for money and status uh, on the part of his um, mother and stepmother? It appears that there were. Again, I don't know enough about the details, but it seems quite a bit that uh, the, these very attractive women uh, were using their attractiveness to get uh, their hooks, so to speak, into successful and wealthy men. So uh, it's hard to know. But um, the idea, he got, from somewhere he got the idea that if you have material possessions, you can have sex. Once he had this idea, which comes from maybe his family, certainly from, from Hollywood, and, and to some degree from women as well, right? And that they're looking for tall, rich, and handsome, right? And he gets this idea from somewhere. Once he has this idea, perhaps because he has problems with his thinking and problems with social skills as a result of Asperger's, but once he has the idea, he's not able to adapt to its failure, right? So he has this idea that when you have money, you get beautiful women. The fact that that wasn't working from him only caused him to double down. He didn't have the capacity to adapt to changing circumstances or have the biofeedback or emotional feedback mechanism that says, what I'm doing is not working, so I should change what I'm doing. I would argue that that comes because major life changes were simply imposed upon him without any consultation. So he does not have the capacity to adapt because adaptations were never eased onto him, but rather inflicted upon him like a ball peen hammer to the forehead. Here's your new stepsister. You got to go to, sorry, stepmother. You got to go to Morocco. There's another kid on the way. Um, you got to go to camp. You got to go to this school. You'll be back late, right? They're just He's just bouncing around like a pinball with no sense of will. And that frustration at the lack of willpower, his lack of capacity to manage his surroundings, to control his stimuli, uh, results in this feeling of intense humiliation and his feeling of helplessness at being able to achieve uh, any kind of sexual life or any kind of romantic life, which then explodes into visceral hatred because he doesn't have a way of getting what he wants and he sees everyone else getting what he wants and his brain translates that into they're taking it from me and must be punished. 
And uh, these, this kind of thinking, it is a kind of thinking that constructs this cathedral of evil. It is a series of conceptual steps which I believe can be intervened, can be broken down, can be, you know, he wanted this love, this sexual life so desperately. I believe that it was a way of reenacting humiliation that remained uh, unprocessed. But there were ways to convince him about how he could get it, but he would have to start with some level of self-criticism, but I imagine that he hated himself so much that self-criticism was like asking him to put his penis in a blender and it would not have uh, worked. So yeah, you consult your kids about major life changes. You do not impose them. That is going to be disastrous. The racial aspect is, as I mentioned, tragically underreported. You know, I hate to shock you, but whites can be victim uh, of racism, uh, absolutely. And this guy was a pretty horrendous racist and it was at least as much a racial crime as it was a gender-based crime. And uh, envy is a tricky emotion because envy can spur you to excellence. You could be envious of somebody's wealth and therefore figure out how they got it and work hard to achieve it. You could be envious of somebody's artistic talent and figure out how to achieve it. So envy can be a spur to the great horse of ambition. But if it turns into a war horse to trample your enemies with, then envy becomes toxic. I think that there's an Aristotelian mean that needs to be dealt with in terms of envy. Having no envy is to kind of be listless and not have any particular goals, particularly when you're young. But having an excess of envy turns toxic and murderous. Uh, And certainly materialism provokes a lot of envy uh, in people. Uh, If only I had this or that or the other material possession or money or wealth or fame or status or power, uh, then everything would be fine. I think we can see certainly from this example and many other examples the world over that the road to happiness is not paved with Rolex watches and designer sunglasses and BMWs and expensive haircuts and so on, that these things degrade the quality of your human offering because the prettier the egg, the more rotten the inside. So often, which is not to say don't present yourself in any positive way, don't care at all about your appearance, but that's another Aristotelian mean, right? Becoming obsessively focused on your appearance is because you wish to distract people from some significant internal dysfunction, as is the case when you care nothing about your appearance either. So uh, I hope that this has been helpful. Again, I wish I could um, pull some facts. The facts are there. The facts are there to find out exactly what happened, but they will almost never be revealed. They are almost never revealed uh, for a variety of reasons, some psychological, some legal, and so on. So the facts are there, but we won't get them. All we get is hints and possible ways to reconstruct this hellish jigsaw puzzle. But I hope that this has been of some help to you. I really, really appreciate your patience as we've gone down this particularly dark, goblin-infested passageway of the human mind. This is Stefan Molyneux for Free Domain Radio. Thank you again so much. Take care of your kids, people.